I'm Suzanne Lynch, and you're listening to a special bonus episode of EU Confidential, brought to you by our health team. I'll be back with our regular episode on Thursday. See you then. Today's episode is presented by Gilead. Gilead's track record of innovations has helped transform HIV into a preventable chronic condition. And we are not stopping there. Together, we can end the epidemic for everyone, everywhere. What is the key priority at the EU and national levels to eliminate the HIV epidemic in Europe? Accessibility to all stages of prevention, primordial, primary, secondary, tertiary, and so on. Accessibility. I think I would second that. Access. Access to the whole range of services, treatment, diagnostic tools, everything. (laughs) Access. Also, just do it. Just do it. Yeah. (laughs) Don't preach, do it. The heart of the barrier to ending AIDS as a public health threat is getting the existing solutions that we know work to those who need them most. That's the message from the former Belgian health minister, a prominent Portuguese member of the European Parliament and the European AIDS Treatment Group, whom you've just heard at the top of the podcast. I recently sat down with the group in our Politico offices in Brussels to debate whether Europe will ever find a cure. Now, it might not seem revolutionary, but access is the nagging obstacle that's resulted in certain populations like prisoners, migrants, sex workers, injecting drug users, remaining at much higher risk of HIV in Europe. You'll be hearing from Sara Serdas, a Portuguese member of the European Parliament from the Socialists and Democrats group who works on health-related legislation in the Parliament. We'll also hear from Belgium's former health minister, Maggie de Bloch, and Anne Isabel von Lingen, Policy and Programme Manager for Combination Prevention at the European AIDS Treatment Group. I'm Ashley Furlong, a healthcare reporter at Politico. Let's jump right into the discussion. You'll be hearing from Anne Isabel of the European AIDS Treatment Group first. We're speaking about a cure, and I know we're not there yet. How far away are we? How, what's the state of play at the moment? I'm not a scientist, so it's more for researchers to say, I think where there's no cure, it's not close, but there are strategies to finding it that we didn't have before. So I think we need to continue investing it in uh, research and Europe is uh, falling behind in its investment in research, both for the cure and for the vaccine. Even when new innovations are developed, getting them to the people who actually need them is difficult. For example, in the first episode, we heard that access to PrEP a treatment that reduces your risk of getting HIV, is only available in one prison in France. These access barriers are part of the reason for the 95-95-95 targets. That is, 95% of those living with HIV know their status, 95% of those who know their status are on treatment, and 95% of those on treatment are virally suppressed. In Belgium, the results are pretty good. Maggie the country's former health minister, said currently 94% of people living with HIV know their status, 89% are on treatment, and 97% of those on treatment are virally suppressed, meaning they can't spread the virus. But that's not enough for her. 
I think we could do better, uh, but uh, why is it uh, so difficult to uh, have access to antiviral treatment? Because we have a number of people here living here, but not being on the radar, not having social protection. So that is a problem. And uh, that we see now that uh, the access is slowly getting better, but we are not there yet. So, uh, so of course, in uh, making progress, is not uh, to have won the battle. Uh, mm. So, yeah, we have to continue, yes. Maggie, when you were health minister, that was a quite a big win for you. You managed to get PrEP reimbursed. I'm wondering, can we go back to that time and you can explain a little bit about what those negotiations were like, what those discussions were like and how maybe how things have changed since then? Well, I think it's uh, still difficult to get reimbursement. Uh, and, uh, but why did I decide to reimburse PrEP? Because I was convinced uh, when I knew uh, how it worked to, to get the viral load as uh, uh, low as possible, that that would be a game changer really for the new infections uh, we had every year. And we saw that there was the, the number of new infected was about... Uh, 1200, 1300s, and then the year after, uh, 50 more or less, but there was not nothing that could have really. And then we saw after reimbursement of PrEP, and of course, also giving guidance by people uh, in communities, not doctors, because people, when they feel sick, they don't always go to a doctor. And so also prevention. Then we saw that the number of new infections dropped uh, from 1200 to 700, and that was really the, the, the proof that we had made a good choice. Of course, you have some criticism also if, if you take a, a decision like that as Minister of Health and people started to send mails, uh, I have a disease, uh, there is no cure for it, and you're going to give that to uh, HIV positive people and so on. So, But for me, a patient is a patient and the patient has to be helped and that's what you're doing it for. It's almost going back to basics, you know, going back to the sort of the beginning where, you know, we're focusing on testing and it's that sort of that needs to be. Anna Isabel, you have a... No, it's a combination. So that's why we call our program <laughs> combination prevention, because it's not just testing. It's not just prep. You need an array of, uh, of services. And uh, we recently did a survey of what community believes is combination prevention services. And it ranged from like condoms, from uh, testing, prep... But they also included uh, like support for to find housing, support like legal assistance, mental health support. The previous episodes, as well as our live event, kept coming back to one issue that's very difficult to tackle. Stigma. It's something that the Spanish presidency of the Council of the EU wants to address over the next six months. Stigma y la discriminación asociada al VIH se ha convertido en una prioridad política de primer nivel para nuestro país. En este sentido, that was Spain's health minister, José Miñones, saying that the stigma and the discrimination associated with HIV is a political priority of the highest level in Spain. But actually ending that stigma isn't easy. Sarah, on stigma, we've been speaking about this and how it's sort of still pervasive, even though we come so far in many other areas. I'm wondering, you're also a doctor, how at the sort of political level, when you, you know, you're working in the European Parliament, how are you able to sort of um, 
bring that experience and, and knowledge of the effect of that stigma on um, your patients and um, on your constituents. I'm wondering how you communicate that to your fellow MEPs and how that can be sort of brought to the political level, sort of addressing stigma. I know we heard it from the Spanish presidency, but practically, you know, what does that actually mean? Yeah, practically, it means a lot of uh, talking with uh, my colleagues also. That there's a lot of colleagues interested in these topics, but we don't talk uh, as we should on the stigma and how we can actually make policies that can address it. And I'll give you an example. Why don't we use the EU for Health program to address uh, stigma in the healthcare uh, field? And why don't we implement programs addressed to better training health professionals on how to deal with uh, with uh, HIV stigma? And this is just an example of how we can do it. There's many, many other examples and there's much more expertise out there. We'll be right back in just a moment to talk about global access issues and the all-important financing question. A message from Gilead. To end the HIV epidemic, we must optimize the tools we have today and continue innovating to bring forward novel options that work for people's lives. But science alone will not end the epidemic. Through our many global and local partnerships, at Gilead, we strive to advance health equity to reduce disparities, advance education among healthcare professionals, and support the local communities in which they operate. Together, we can end the epidemic for everyone, everywhere. Europe could be the first region to achieve the goal, but a clear and strong renewed commitment to the cause from both the EU and its member states is needed now. The conversation on this podcast over the past few weeks has been largely about Europe. But where HIV is the biggest threat is in sub-Saharan Africa. In 2019, in countries like South Africa, Mozambique and Botswana, HIV was still the leading cause of death. That's pretty shocking, given it's been nearly 30 years since effective treatments were developed. While people with HIV in the US were able to access these treatments shortly after they were developed. For many countries in Africa, it was a years-long battle. And when the COVID-19 pandemic came around, these same countries struggled to get their hands on life-saving vaccines. I asked whether Anne Isabel, from the European AIDS Treatment Group, thought that the same could happen if there was an HIV cure developed in the future. We have it with MPOX vaccine. So like all the European countries hoarded the vaccines. <laughs> so like they did the same with uh, COVID and pox. So I think it's, it's very probable that it will happen. So we as community have to play our role as well to advocate for solid global solidarity. Sarah, I'm wondering how concerned you are about looking to the future of HIV and looking to the future of there are new treatments coming, there are new innovations getting those to the people who need them, how concerned are you that they might not get to those people? And potentially, what can we do now to try solve that issue? It's a big question, so I don't expect you to have the whole answer. No, that's a a big but very interesting question because I think what we can do now is actually, and when I hear Anne-Isabelle talking, is uh, next week we're going to hopefully approve a COVID report from the European Parliament on what happened and lessons for the future. And there's a lot there that can resonate to other epidemics out there, uh, pandemics and also endemics. And this is something that 
we need to keep working, and not only on reports or positions of Parliament on any reports, but also, for instance, what we are working now on the pharma uh, legislation package, what we are working now on the European health data space, for instance, to have better data for research and innovation. All of this can impact HIV. And when we are talking about HIV, and this is something that I try to convince to my colleagues, we're not addressing one disease at a time. When we address HIV, we can also address and put tools out there that can be used for other communicable diseases. And then there's a several million dollar question about the financing. Things aren't looking great. For example, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria fell short of its funding goal for the next few years at its most recent replenishment. Government budgets are increasingly squeezed with multiple competing priorities, such as the war in Ukraine, ailing health systems and widespread inflation. Attention on HIV is also dwindling, with the virus mainly an epidemic of a very specific population in Europe. Anne Isabel told the audience that promises for action are not enough when it comes to HIV. What's needed are not warm words, but cold, hard cash. We have countless of <laughs> action plans and uh, we need action. And um, action means money. <laughs> so if there could be a project or, you know, there could be earmarked funding for a project funded by eu for health for Horizon, you know, who doesn't, doesn't ask, doesn't get it. Here's Sarah, a member of the European Parliament, and the role of the MFF, which is the multi-annual financial framework. It's the EU's long-term budget, which sees intense lobbying over how exactly the funds will be dispersed. While the pandemic gave health a significant boost, there are concerns about whether this will be sustained. We need to ensure that there's adequate uh, resources and that's something we aim to actually start the discussions for the next MFF because it's of the utmost importance that it does not happen what happened with this MFF, which was that health only got 500 million euros, but that it was necessary a pandemic to more than raise it by 20 fold. So the proposal by the commission went from 500 millions to 9.4 billion. We ended up with 5.3, which is outstanding and it's remarkable, but we need to keep the momentum alive to ensure there's enough finances to enable these resources to be able to put on the ground to serve these populations. Because it, as we stated in the beginning, there's some gaps that need to be closed and these gaps won't be made through an EU approach on HIV, but the EU has a responsibility to provide the tools and mechanisms that member states can apply it on the ground and actually together with the different stakeholders in the local communities to reach these uh, groups, those more vulnerable groups. Mm -hmm. Maggie, I'm wondering if you think that there is sufficient political will to get to these goals, not just in Belgium, it seems like there might be in Belgium, but across the whole of the EU and where you see that. Well, I certainly hope there is the will, but there has to be the funding also in the countries. And, and you know that uh, you, you have your budget for health. Uh, now it has been uh, absorbed or more than enough by corona and uh, post-corona uh, for the long COVID and so on patients. So I think that it's also uh, very important that there is enough funding in the countries uh, for that. And that uh, it's not why you're 
tackling the pandemic uh, consequences that you don't have to tackle the other one. So because that's for one health, it's putting a bucket there when all the, the roof is uh, leaking. So uh, and then you say we will put it there afterwards. So that's not that's not what we have to do. Meanwhile, it's not just money that's an issue. The rise of populist political parties in Europe have caused concern that HIV may be sidelined. This is because the disease usually affects the most marginalised in society, people like sex workers, migrants and injecting drug users. Those aren't populations that many on the far right are particularly interested in fighting for. Sorry, is this something you're concerned about with the European elections coming up, that we might see this sort of more populist shift with regards to HIV, but also health more broadly, like how could that affect sort of health policy files uh, in the future? Yeah, that's a worry that hits me every day now, almost, and especially with the current uh, movements in the parliament. And it's something that worries me because I, I was, when I was born, I, Portugal was already in the EU. So I, this is my reality. I, I This is the reality I'm, I'm familiar with. And we know that the EU is not a static project, it's a dynamic, ever-evolving project. And my worry is that we have less Europe less EU in the next European Parliament, and that means uh, less EU in uh, health uh, policies and consequently less funding and resources and programs because, for instance, a lot of stakeholders in the ground, a lot of actors that work with local communities get their funding through EU programs, and this is something that will directly influence this. So I'm very worried uh, not only for HIV and the health uh, field, but also for the climate emergency. Finally, I asked each of the panellists how far off they think Europe is from reaching the goal to end AIDS as a public health threat by 2030. Here's Anne-Isabel. I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> Doesn't look too good now, I would say. And... Um, you know, even when you reach the goals, you will not reach it for everyone. And that's really, we, that's, from our perspective, it's not acceptable that some people will be left behind. And so we need to work harder. I think there needs to be a discussion about what after 2030, because we're not going to probably reach the goal. It's not to say that we should be pessimistic. There's still some hope. Sarah, what do you think? I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic, but again, we need to close the gap on this very targeted epidemic that we are having now. We need to reach these vulnerable groups. Thanks, Sarah. And Maggie, your thoughts? Well, I certainly agree, but uh, it's not because we are 2030 that the virus will uh, disappear like that. So the virus is still alive. It's still having mutations. So, you know... Uh, that's why medication research uh, always has to continue but because we know that uh, when the virus has mutations, some medication is not helping anymore and we need other. I think vaccines would be very good, but uh, that not that it, they would help everyone. So there still be people infected. If I say in Belgium two every day, for me it's too much. That point that if even two people are infected in a day in Belgium, it's too much, illustrates the broader problem that Europe faces. The HIV epidemic on the continent is one that's mainly affecting a small group of people, 
But if health systems can't get prevention methods, tests and treatments to them, they've got no hope of ensuring access to a cure. If or when it is finally found in the future. I'm Ashley Furlong. Thank you for listening. This episode was recorded and produced by Christina Gonzalez and Peter Snowden. It was edited by Joanna Roberts. Special thanks to our Politico Live team.